You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Exodus chapters 13 and 40, and I'll begin in chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And now in chapter 40, beginning in verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. In 1886, a man named Jean Albert Dadas was checked into a hospital for exhaustion. He didn't. Uh, we can actually take the Romans slide down because we are not in Romans today. We're taking a slight detour. I shouldn't mention that. Sorry. So in 1886, Jean Albert Dadas was uh, welcomed. Uh, welcomed. He was uh, checked into a hospital. With exhaustion. He didn't know where he had been. He didn't know how he got there. He just knew that he was exhausted and at the end of his life. So they began to search his things and search his documents and they found his passport. And what they found is that John Albert had actually been traveling a long, long distance. He had traveled through the, the nation of France and actually into various portions of, of Europe. Like the fictional character Forrest Gump, he just started walking and then he just kept walking and walking and walking. So doctors and scientists were called in to study him and to figure out what was happening to him. Now this was in the 1800s, when anytime someone did something strange, they wanted to cut their head open and see what was going on inside their brain. So like, what is going on with this person? And many names for his condition were suggested at the time. Pathological tourism was one of them. Dramamania was another. And then one that ended up actually sticking, maybe a term you're familiar with, was wonderlust. Wonderlust. One of the men studying John Hubbard was, came up with this very fascinating theory, and it was that every once in a while, the human body can be struck with this ancient impulse to journey. And that this unexplainable urge to wander is actually the traces, he explained it as the leftovers in our genetic makeup, of an ancient nomadic instinct buried deep within every single human. And no matter how 
you know, domesticated we become, we still experience this strange thing called the call of the wild. To come away from the comforts and the safety of our modern, stable living and into the wilderness of risk and adventure. And he was hearing that call of the wild. But you see, Tolkien put it best when he famously said, Not all who wander are lost. This is the title of this evening's message, Not All Who Wander Are Lost. Unlike John Albert in the 19th century, our wandering does not have to be aimless. We can know where we've been, we can know where we're going, and most importantly, we can know who goes with us. That is the overarching theme of the book of Exodus that we are pausing to look at this evening. The story of God delivering his people out of slavery and in Egypt and into the life of the promised land. There are a lot of themes, even in this short passage that we're looking at here, that are both timeless and at the same time very timely for where we find ourselves as a church. Right now, we have a lot of questions as a community. We have a lot of questions as a people. Very good questions. Questions that we may not be able to resolve right now. But I do want to settle what I believe to be the more pressing questions that we can actually have clarity on through God's Word. And so we're going to really ask and answer four questions. Why are we here? And I don't mean like... Why are we here? What happened like, with the building? We've talked enough about that. But like, why? The big why? Why are we here? Where are we going? Who's with us? And what's the plan? Let's look first at why are we here. Look at me again in chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So the first thing to notice about God's leadership is God's leadership is not just about where he takes us. God's leadership is also about where he does not take us. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here in Exodus, there was the obvious clear route. There was the shorter, direct way straight to the promised land. The like, duh, that's the way we ought to go path. And then there was the better route, the less obvious path, the less convenient path, the less traveled path. Here's where we learn to really manage our expectations and learn to guard our hearts from unnecessary disappointment. We as God's people have to constantly assess, do we want the short, obvious, direct way Or do we want God's better way? Do we want earthly, worldly wisdom? Or do we want God's strange, strange path? Continuing in verse 17, for God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and then return to Egypt. Now we as believers are like stereotypical backseat drivers. God is at the wheel. 
He signals right. We're sitting in the back seat, and we're like, oh, actually, God, it's left over here. I know you're, like, sovereign in God and in control, but, like, left is the way home. And God just keeps going right. And you're like, okay, well, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway, so here we go. I, I, I told you we should turn left, and God turns right. But you see, God sees what we cannot see ahead. And detours can be God's way of actually sparing us from destruction. This is what he was doing for the Israelites. It was the clear, obvious, easy route that he knew would actually lead to their destruction and cause them to turn back into slavery. God does this weird thing. God God gives his people what we would ask for and what we would pursue if we knew all the things that God knew. If we had God's vantage point. We think, man, God, I don't know if I can endure where you are leading me. I don't know if we will be able to endure this path that you are leading us on as a church. But passages like this actually remind us, no, what you actually wouldn't be able to endure is where you thought that you should be. Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. That's a very important statement there. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. I was here uh, Friday setting up, helping set up in some of our kids' ministry areas, building some of these temporary partitions. And I was listening to like a worship playlist on Spotify in the background. And I'm you know, sort of whistling as I work. And I hear this line... And I'm like, did I hear that right? And, and so I go back and I actually rewind it to, to see if I heard it right. And I heard it right. And it said this. Maybe you're familiar with the song. The first line of the song was this. Out of the wilderness and into deliverance, look where I'm standing now. Out of the wilderness and into deliverance, look where I'm standing now. Now, I had a little bit of an edge because I'd been spending some time looking at this passage. And I'm thinking, this may seem like semantics. This may seem like splicing hairs here, but that's completely backwards. It's completely backwards. As we see from Exodus, and as we know from the Christian journey, we're not delivered out of the wilderness. Strangely enough, we are delivered into the wilderness. We experience the wilderness not by chance, not by mistake. We experience the wilderness by God's leading. We see in the Gospel of Mark as Jesus is coming out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. The booming voice of the Father declares in front of everyone, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Like this is a pinnacle moment of God's declaration of approval over his life. And while Jesus is still sopping wet from baptism, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, then immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Well, that's weird. I thought it was out of the wilderness and into the deliverance. No, it's out of deliverance and into the wilderness. In our wilderness moments, we're often tempted to ask questions like these. What did I do to get here? Where did I miss the turn? Where did we go wrong? How did we mess things up so much to now find ourselves in this place. I have wrestled with questions like this too much, too often over these last few months. What did we do? 
But we need to notice something here. And it is so vital that we notice this. The Israelites were not in the wilderness because they had gotten God's directions wrong. They were in the wilderness because they had gotten God's directions right. Against all sensibility, they bravely followed God into the unknown. In reality, by God's grace, so have you. You are brave. A little nuts, but brave. Brave. Here we are again in our moment of unsettledness, adapting to somewhere different. Now, don't get me wrong, beautiful, but different. It's our moment of disorientation. It's our moment of unsettledness. It's our wilderness moment. And yet, here we are, courageously seeking God in the uncertainty. Where else would we be? What else could we be doing? But seeking God in our wilderness moment. Why are we here? Well, the simple answer is is this. It's because God has led us here. Why are we here? Because God intends to form in us something that wouldn't be possible elsewhere. Why are we here? Because God's way is the wilderness way. Secondly, where are we going? Where are we going? The unexpected twists and turns become bearable, and I would even say exciting, when we know where we're ultimately headed. I believe that we will be able to brave our moments of uncertainty when we have clarity about the overall direction, the direction of our lives, the direction of our church. But this direction is not going to look like what we expected. It's not going to sound exactly like what we expected. See, we spend too much time obsessing about the next step when God is often calling us to focus on the final goal. So Paul declares in the letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, I focus on one thing. I am obsessed about one very thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I'm fixated on the goal. I'm fixated on the end. I'm fixated on eternity. You know what that means? It means that we can stop stressing about what's behind us And we can stop stressing about what's next when we are consumed by what is final. In moments like this, it's really important for us to step back. That was my hope for us today, to be able to step back and see the bigger picture. To see the trajectory of our lives and our church. You see, there's a particular theme that runs all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, from the very moment that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and traveled east of Eden all the way up to the final pages in the book of Revelation where we read about the restored city of God coming down out of heaven. What we see in Scripture is that life in between, between those bookends, life is an ongoing journey. 
God's people are on a journey toward the promised land. Where are we going? Toward our promised land. And while we are at home in our relationship with God, we see that pictured in the parable of the prodigal son. We are at the same time not at home. We're not home. We're not home in this world. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims, which explains that sense of unsettledness that never quite goes away. And just as there is an instinct like Jean Albert de Das to wander, there is an even deeper instinct to be home. To be home. Why do we wander? Why are we always moving toward what is next? Why do we have such a difficult time being present in the moment? Why do our hearts never really quite let us feel settled, even when we get the thing, the person, and the opportunity that we thought would bring us so much stability in our lives? Why do we still feel unsettled? And the answer is because we were made for a different home, a heavenly one. To borrow from St. Augustine, our hearts are homesick until they find their final home with God. This is why the book of Exodus is such an important part of Scripture for the Christian life, because it's a picture of our life. This isn't just their story. This is our story. We were brought out of our harsh slavery to sin and into freedom and new life through our better Moses, Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus became the Passover lamb whose blood now covers us from death. We, through baptism, have passed safely through the waters of judgment. Christ was the rock that was broken open that now brings water refreshing into our life and on and on and on. And like most of the book of Exodus, we're in between. We're in between deliverance and our final destination. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the settled happiness and security which we all desire, here's the hard part, God withholds from us by very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. In other words, what he's saying is that we have these little, tiny moments of stability and security, but they are the exception, not the norm. And he goes on to say this, the security that we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would be an obstacle to our return to God. Our Father refreshes us on our journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Reality, God has refreshed us on our journey with a very pleasant end. A very pleasant end. A place to gather, a place to grow, a place to flourish, a place to see men and women and children's lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a place where, Lord willing, we will be able to put down roots, but at the same time, God is not going to encourage us to mistake this for home. Where are we going? 
We're on a journey to our final destination. You guys still with me? Thirdly, who is with us? The Bible always seems to be reshaping our questions. We bring all sorts of legitimate questions about life and faith and the future. Well, Lord, how does this work? And well, what about this over there? Here, what, what are you doing? And, and where are you taking us? And, and here's the question we love to ask. Why? Why are you doing this? Why me? What? Why now? Why here? Why? 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 And it's not that these are bad questions. It's not that these aren't good questions. But these are just not the most important questions. And a prime example of this is found in the book of Job. Job was a man, as you know, that suffered tremendously. And then he and his friends sent, spent a significant amount of time trying to wrap their minds around that question. Why? Why did this happen to Job? Why? Why all this loss? Why is Job here? But at the end of the book, the Lord shows up, he encounters God, and God answers Job, but he answers him in a way, you know, he answers questions that Job essentially was not asking. Here, here, this is important to know. God has the right to not answer your questions, by the way. And God has the right to answer the questions that you should be asking. And what God does is this very frustrating but necessary thing. He changes the script completely. He says, essentially, the most important question is not why. I know you think it is, but it's not. The most important question is who? Who is with us? Who is with me? At the very end, as Job has encountered God, he declares this in Job 42, I heard the reports of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and he essentially says, and that is enough. I thought that I needed an explanation, but in reality what I needed was an encounter. I thought I needed the answer to my question, why? But in reality, I needed to know who you were, God, and who is with me. And likewise, here in Exodus, God settles the most important question for Israel, who is with them? And it tells us in verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so in their journey through these hot, you know, desert days under the scorching sun, the cloud would lead them and provide shade for them. And at night during these cold, dark desert nights, the fire would go before them and it would warm them and it would protect them from the elements. The pillar and the cloud of Exodus reminds us that in all of our wanderings, no matter what season we're in, no matter where we go, God is with us. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where's our cloud? Where's our fire? There have been so many moments of this last year where I'm just like, give us a cloud, 
give us a fire, we'll follow. Just make it clear. Where's our visible sign of guidance that, and reminder that God is present with us? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> In the days following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the writer of Acts tells us this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, speaking of the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of what? Fire. Fire. Say it like you mean it. Fire. Fire. Filled and rested upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So think, think about this. Picture the scene with me. Exodus and Acts. The fire that at one time was unapproachable, consuming fire. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It served an amazing purpose. But you did not want to get too close. That same fire that at one time was unapproachable now has drawn near and rests upon us. For those who trust in Jesus, we receive something better than a cloud, something better than the pillar of fire. We receive the Holy Spirit of God within us and among us, not something to show us the way, but someone who is making a way. Amen. We don't need a thing. We need this someone. And Pentecost reminds us that God has given us the gift of His Spirit, the gift of His presence. It's the Spirit that unites us with Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that now ministers the ongoing presence of God with us. He is in our midst. Amen. You see how this changes now? Everything. You see how this changes the, the wilderness journey entirely? What this means is that that the promised land isn't just some final destination. Now it's the journey itself. St. Catherine of Siena once said, all the way to heaven is heaven. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way. Heaven's not just some far off distant place. Jesus taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What is the answer to that prayer? Jesus, with us. If heaven is heaven because God is there, and God is now with us, then even the dry wilderness can begin to resemble the garden of Eden. And so let's look finally at the burning question. What's the plan? I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this question over the last few months. So what's the plan, Pastor? Good question. Good question. What we see throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way up to the very last pages, the very last verses that were actually read in our reading this afternoon. What we see is this, that God does not give his people a game plan. I hate to break it to you. God does not give his people a road map. God does not give his people a strategy for success. God gives us himself. 
Look with me again in chapter 40, verses 36 through 38, through all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. It's not our job to figure out what's next. It's not our job to form some perfect plan. It's not our job to draft an inspiring strategy for our church. Here it is. Our responsibility is to stay close to God. To not get out ahead of Him. To not drag our feet when He moves. To go where He leads. To step, to settle in where He stays. And to refuse to make this about our vision and our wants and our dreams. And ins insist on staying fixated on Him. There it is. That's the plan. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to do. Now I know that that is not going to be satisfactory for a lot of people. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. Especially for many of us, for, you know, in light of our expectation for some sort of sense of smug certainty. For those to be led by leaders, you know, who come down off the mountain with crystal clear vision. Here's where we're going to go. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how long it's going to take us. Here are all the answers. I got news for you. I am not Moses. And no one else is here. But I got good news for you. And what I'm confident of is that God is still God. We're not Moses. But God is still God. And he will never remove his presence or fail to make his way known to those who through faith watch and wait. What are we doing here? Watching and waiting. Typical mindset of the evangelical church goes something like this. We need a plan to do something amazing for God. We need a plan to do something to let the world know who God is. You read through the Bible, you see something kind of different, actually. It seems like every time God's people are singing, they're singing some variation of this song. Look at what God has done for us. Look at what God has planned for us. Look at the great things God continues to do. He makes a way where there's no way. He provides where there is lack. He leads the way when there's uncertainty. He does it. I know the plans I have for you, God says. And so reality, here's our strategy. Oh, this sounds so Pentecostal and I love it. Let's stay close to the fire. Let's stay close to the fire. With our eyes fixated on God. With our lives open before Him and dependent upon Jesus and our hearts totally satisfied, saying, You are enough to the presence of God with us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then calling others who are far away to come join us as well. Calling those who are far off to come be warmed 
by the fiery presence of God among us. Amen? Let me close with the words, the sanctified words of the writer of Hebrews, who says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, not me, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day approaching, what is the plan? That's the plan. So help us, God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much.